Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. At the end of last year, we did a countdown on the hottest animal news stories of 2019. And you can listen to that show by going to animalstodayradio.com, and it was the show of December 28th of last year. And I'll just tell you that the number one animal news story of 2019 was the bill that President Trump signed into law on November 25th that makes animal cruelty a federal crime. This new law is called the PACT Act, and it stands for the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act. And I'm going to get into the background and specifics of the law in a second, because this was a very big deal. And unless you follow animal protection legislation, you might be hearing about this right now for the very first time. But generally speaking, under this new law, intentional acts of cruelty to animals are federal crimes, and offenders can now be punished with fines, felony charges, and up to seven years in prison. This bill was introduced in the House of Representatives last year by two Florida lawmakers, Representative Ted Deutsch, a Democrat, and Representative Vern Buchanan, a Republican. On October 22nd of last year, the House of Representatives unanimously passed the bill. In early November, the Senate also unanimously passed the bill. So with bipartisan support, the PACT Act was on its way to President Trump's desk to formalize legislation that animal advocates believe was long overdue. President Trump said during the signing ceremony where he was joined by animal activists, it's important that we combat these heinous and sadistic acts of cruelty, which are totally unacceptable in a civilized society. Okay, so here's the background. The PACT Act is meant to expand upon the Animal Crush Video Prohibition Act, which went into effect in 2010, yet it contains some significant oversight. When the 2010 bill was signed into law by President Obama, it became illegal to create and distribute what are known as animal crushing or animal torturing videos. However, the law only applied to the recordings of the acts of cruelty against animals. It did not cover the acts of cruelty themselves. Does that make sense? No, it really doesn't. So it prohibits creating and distributing these horrific videos of animals being tortured, but it doesn't cover the underlying acts of animal abuse. The new law, the PACT Act, closes that loophole, making the acts of animal cruelty illegal under federal law. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term animal crushing, it's defined as conduct in which one or more living non-human mammals, birds, reptiles, or amphibians is purposely crushed, burned, drowned, suffocated, impaled, or otherwise subjected to serious bodily injury. So people make and distribute their own depraved videos, often as a form of entertainment, in which live animals were shown suffering from horrific torture and mutilation and gruesome deaths. The videos often depict small defenseless animals being crushed to death by women wearing high heel shoes. Hard to think about, I know. The 2010 Animal Crush Video Prohibition Act went into effect in response to an alarming trend that had been gaining popularity on the internet in both the US and other countries. What the hell is wrong with people? Crushing animals? Torturing animals was a trend on the internet. So under the Animal Crush Video Prohibition Act of 2010, it was illegal to create and distribute these videos, but the law didn't cover 
the acts of animal cruelty themselves. And although these egregious acts of animal cruelty might be subject to prosecution by the state, it's hard to bring a case under state law because it's hard to know where the actual acts of cruelty took place. The PACT Act that President Trump signed into law near the end of last year makes these acts of animal cruelty illegal under federal law. Many law enforcement agencies indicated great support for this new legislation because evidence shows a link between animal cruelty and violence toward people. There are only a few federal animal protection laws on the books in the United States. For example, in 2007, interstate dog fighting activities became a federal law. Of course, dog fighting received widespread attention after discovering Michael Vick had a dog fighting ring operation on his property. For those of you who are too young to remember, Michael Vick is a disgraced former Atlanta Falcons quarterback. Michael Vick is also a dog torturer and a dog murderer, a dog killer, and a psychopath. The fact that Michael Vick ran a dog fighting ring operation on his property makes him a repulsive, reprehensible human being. But in addition, Michael Vick executed the dogs who didn't perform well in dog fights by hanging the dogs, drowning them, electrocuting them, and other means. And this is how dog fighting works. The dogs are tested in fights, and if the dogs aren't vicious enough to tear to pieces his opponent fighting dog, then the dogs are destroyed. You breed dogs, keep the best fighters, destroy the rest. That's how it works. That's what Michael Vick did. And then Michael Vick apologizes. Oh, I'm so sorry for what I did. No, you're not, you phony baloney dog abuser. You're incapable of feeling remorse for all the dogs you tortured and murdered in horrible ways. You are incapable of feeling empathy for all the suffering you caused on these dogs. But I can tell you, at least this case brought attention to the brutality of dogfight. Anyway, I got off on a little tangent here, didn't I? We are talking about the PAC Act. The PAC Act stands for the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, which President Trump signed into law near the end of last year. And until the signing of the PAC Act, most regulation regarding the treatment of animals has happened at the state level. Quote from Kitty Block, President and Chief Executive of the Humane Society of the United States. She said, PACT makes a statement about American values. Animals are deserving of protection at the highest level. The approval of the measure by the Congress and the President marks a new era in the codification of kindness to animals within federal law. For decades, a national anti-cruelty law was a dream for animal protectionists. Today, it's a reality. When President Trump was in the Oval Office signing this, he said, this is something that should have happened a very long time ago. And he's so right here. And this has nothing to do about politics. You can like our president or you can hate our president. One thing for sure is what he did was a big deal and a huge win for the animals. Because look, going back to Michael Vick for a minute, think about this. Michael Vick went to jail for less than two years in federal prison. For what? Animal cruelty? No, not really. That's the thing. He went to jail for racketeering and organized crime because he was bankrolling an interstate dogfighting operation. It was a gambling operation that crossed state lines. 
and the actual animal cruelty, which he did get convicted of under state law, he didn't serve any jail time for that. So he served 18 months in prison before being welcomed back to the public spotlight. He was honored at a Pro Bowl. He was invited to join the Humane Society of the United States in their anti-dog fighting campaign to speak to children about how to treat dogs nicely. Give me a break. Really, Humane Society of the United States? You take a guy like Vic, who did these horrible things to dogs, beat them, hung them, electrocuted them, drowned them? Oh, now let's have him talk to our children about how to treat dogs nicely. Would you want your child to be taught about humane education by a dog abuser and a dog murderer? I don't think so. I wouldn't allow my child to come anywhere near a violent criminal, including one who enjoys watching dogs tear each other apart until one dog is dead, or a violent criminal who had no problem with brutally ending the life of innocent dogs. Time Magazine listed Vic as one of top 10 comebacks in 2010. That is funny. Top comebacks are individuals who have overcome hardship or adversity. You wanna talk about comebacks? Comebacks are Michael Vick's rescued, surviving, abused dog victims. These dogs are top comebacks. Of the 51 pit bulls rescued from Vick's property, two dogs were so badly injured and sick, they died shortly following the raid, and one was humanely euthanized after being deemed too emotionally and physically damaged to save. The remaining 48 dogs, who were viewed by many as a threat to public safety and demanded them to be euthanized, many who thought these 48 dogs were too far gone to benefit from rehabilitation. And indeed, most dogs picked up from busted dog fighting rings are euthanized because they are so badly injured physically and emotionally and psychologically. But instead, because Vic was a popular NFL star quarterback, and thus the story was so highly publicized, these dogs were given a chance at what a dog's life should be. So these 48 dogs are the real comebacks. Like Johnny Justice, who ended up working as a therapy dog. According to his caretaker, Johnny Justice is a little kid magnet bringing smiles and laughter to children. Or that once terrified dog named Cherry Garcia, who lived on as a bit of a celebrity and would go out with his adoptive family to events and get the word out that abused animals aren't inherently evil. And his favorite thing to do after being rescued and loved and cared for was to snuggle with his family, including his canine sister and his cats. And you can see pictures and videos online of Cherry and a cat grooming and loving each other. And Hector, another one of Vic's former fighting dogs, became a licensed therapy dog, spending time at nursing homes and schools and hospitals. And then there was handsome Dan, and you can see pictures of handsome Dan hanging out as happy as he can be with his adoptive family, including his human baby sister. These are top comeback stories, not Michael Vick. So Michael Vick spent less than two years in federal prison, but not first cruelty to the animals. Isn't that infuriating? So had the PACT Act been in place, instead of less than two years, Michael Vick would likely have been in jail for seven years. Another example of how to apply the PACT Act, you have these horrible breeders, puppy mills, they advertise. Well, if they advertise online, on the internet, you're engaging in interstate commerce. So you have a breeder, puppy mill operator, who drowns unwanted dogs, not uncommon, while engaging in interstate activity. 
Well, the PACT Act provides for felony charges, fines, and up to seven years in prison. Okay, you get it, and you understand now how the PACT Act, signed near the end of last year by President Trump, which makes animal cruelty a federal crime, was the biggest animal story of 2019. Welcome back to the show. You know, the other day was World Rabies Day, and Peter and I were talking about this, and we realized there are probably a lot of misconceptions about rabies. A few years ago, we spoke to one of the authors of the book, Rabid. You may not want to read 288 pages about rabies, but it was well-reviewed, and we really liked it. But we do get a little freaked out about rabies and the risk it may pose to us and to our dogs. In our backyard on some evenings at dusk, we see bats flying around and not sure why, but we just go inside when they come. Peter especially is afraid of being mistaken for moth and bitten. And then what do you do? And even though we wondered whether these flying shadows are really bats, maybe they're birds. About two months ago, Peter found a small dead one on our back patio. So we know they're real and they are here. Last year, a middle-aged woman from South Carolina died of rabies. That's really scary. So like I said, the other day, September 28th was World Rabies Day. So what do we need to know about rabies? Dr. Robert Reed is medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, and he returns to speak with us. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to be back. Rob, okay, we know rabies is a dangerous virus. Tell us a little bit about the rabies virus. Well, as you probably know, um, rabies has been around for, well, as far as we know, 4,000 years, at least as far as documentation goes, and it's a, it's a disease that, that's still strong after all that time. Um, it can affect any mammal, um, of course, even people. Um, it's transmitted through bite wounds primarily. It's passed in the saliva, and it's prevalent in our environment in, in wildlife, and as you've touched on in California, the, the main carriers are bats. Um, we don't see it, fortunately, in dogs and cats very often in this country because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s to control it largely through vaccination programs. So we're very fortunate that it's rare for us to encounter uh, rabies in a dog or a cat or even another domestic animal, and even more rare in people, but it hasn't gone away after thousands of years. It's still there. It's still a risk, and efforts to control it still continue and should. And the untreated disease is pretty gruesome, isn't it? It is. It's almost invariably fatal in people and in other species as well. It causes progressive neurologic disease. So typically, Robert... Y- you really don't know if the animals that bite you or attack you is rabid. So what are the steps one should take? Well, fortunately, our society has measures to address that. Um, Every community has an animal control agent or agency uh, that will address that. And in fact, I think it's important if a person is bitten by a wild animal or even a dog or a cat and they don't know anything about it, uh, to contact animal control, and, and they have mechanisms in place to address that concern. Does it help to capture the animal if you can? 
It definitely does. Uh, of course, anyone who does this should do it safely or perhaps even better should contact animal control and have them do it if that's a possibility um, so that the animal can be tested for rabies. Uh, and, of course, a, pet, uh, a pet's vaccination status has a, a large impact on how that situation would be handled. So if this does occur, the vaccine, it's called uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. It, how bad is that? Well, post-exposure rabies vaccination is not as bad as what we tend to think of. You know, historically, we were worried about the shots in the belly and the painful injections that go on for weeks. And I don't really think that's that's applicable nowadays. The injections that are given are given into the muscle. I think they are painful. They cause a lot of soreness, and everyone would prefer to avoid them um, if they could. And they are expensive. Uh, but, of course, you know, the alternative of worrying about whether your exposure is going to lead to rabies or, of course, getting the disease is unthinkable in comparison. Talk about dogs and cats having rabies. How common is that in the U.S.? Well, it's not very common. And I'm more familiar with our own area, and it's been decades since uh, the Coachella Valley has had a reported case of rabies in a dog or a cat. It is still present in bats, and and it does pop up every now and then in a bat. Uh, But we haven't had a a case that we know of in a dog or a cat for a long time. Now, the recommendations for unvaccinated dogs and cats who are possibly infected are are pretty harsh, huh? Potentially. You know, I think the key thing to remember um, as a pet owner with with regard to rabies and, and, and issues that come up like that is that the decision about what happens to your pet is going to be made by representatives of animal control agencies uh, as to whether the pet goes through a quarantine, how long the quarantine is. I think in very rare instances, euthanasia, but it's much more likely to be a quarantine situation, and the type of quarantine and whatever decisions are made about the pet will be affected by the vaccine status. So it's really important that we maintain um, current vaccines for rabies, against rabies in dogs and cats, even though the state of California does not require it in cats, it is required in dogs, currently is not required in cats, it's still recommended. So Dr. Reed, the vaccination is required in dogs. Is it safe? It is a safe vaccination. You know, we, we don't really encounter reactions to rabies vaccine with any greater frequency than other vaccines, and it's extremely infrequent in dogs. And now in cats, you know, um, the question about rabies vaccination in cats um, has a little bit of a, a different nuance because cats don't respond exactly the same to vaccinations as dogs do, and in the past have had some fairly unique types of reaction that can occur months or years down the road after the vaccination occurs. So the vaccine manufacturers have made some adjustments in the type of vaccines that they provide, and we now have alternatives for cat vaccinations against rabies that really don't present any any greater risk than the vaccine for dogs, which is very low. And, um, And I think that the risk for rabies and for animal control related problems, uh, especially through exposure to wildlife, um, outweigh the risks of the vaccine. And how often are we supposed to give the vaccine in dogs? 
to dogs in California, it's every three years. That's a regulation. Uh, the vaccine may have protection beyond that, but it's regulated to be given every three years in adult dogs. It's given once uh, in young dogs after the age of 12 weeks, and then that is repeated one year later, and then it's every three years. In cats, it depends on which vaccine you use. There are one-year and three-year vaccinations against rabies for cats. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of eight to nine feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back. Joining us again from Arizona State University's Canine Science Collaboratory is Professor Clive Wynn, who leads the lab. And today we are going to be discussing stress in dogs at shelters. Hi, Clive. Hi, Peter. You know, it seems logical that shelters are stressful environments for dogs, but do we know that to be true? And what are you aiming to uncover with this line of research? Oh, yes. It's been known for some time that life in, a, in an animal shelter is extremely stressful for dogs. Uh, you can see that in, the, in their behavior, but uh, it's also established there's a hormone called cortisol, which uh, the levels rise in the body when an individual is stressed, in us just as in our dogs. And it's, it's fairly easy to measure because it can be detected in an individual's urine. So if you just catch the pee, you can then uh, freeze that and take it to a laboratory and have it analyzed. So we certainly know that dogs in shelters are stressed. Um, my students and I, particularly Lisa Gunter, have been, have been looking at this from a couple of points of view. Uh, basically, what can we do to reduce the stress of dogs in shelters? That's the, that's the ultimate goal. Obviously, it's, it's cruel to subject dogs to, to stress if we can avoid it, and it probably contributes to the unattractive behaviors that dogs in shelters produce that make them less attractive to potential adopters. So we know that dogs... Uh, the way dogs act becomes less and less attractive to potential adopters the longer they stay in the shelter. And uh, that's probably due to the buildup of stress that they experience. Describe the uh, completed study where the dogs were given a single night away from the shelter. Sure. So we had the good fortune to get some assistance from Maddie's fund, who provided us with the resources to look into what happens when dogs go away from the shelter for one night. 
people call this overnight fostering. And a number of shelters around the country do this now. And uh, my students spend a summer going around the country catching the urine from as many dogs as they could so that uh, the cortisol levels could be analyzed before, during, and after these sleepovers. And what they found was that the time away does lead to a clear reduction in stress, but it also does bounce back when the dogs return to the shelter. So, so we found that the one night away is definitely helpful. Uh, it definitely gives the dogs some respite from the stress of being in the shelter but it doesn't lead to any long-term improvements. And now, as part of a much larger project also supported by Maddie's Fund, uh, we are enrolling shelters around the country, and we're looking now not just at these short overnight fostering opportunities, but longer fostering opportunities, and also shorter outings where the dogs might just go out on a sort of a day trip to some environment away from the shelter. So we're looking at all these different ways of getting dogs out of the shelters to see how they might reduce the dog's stress and also potentially improve their behavior uh, because ultimately the goal is to get the dogs into a human home, into a lasting relationship with a human family. And if we can find ways of getting their behavior to be more attractive, to potential adopters, then that's how they will how they will get into a home. And you're thinking that stress or whatever is indicated by the elevated cortisol that could uh, interfere with the dog's behavior when they're being assessed by uh, potential adopters or even by the staff. Yeah, stress. Certainly, you know, we see this in our own species. We see this in ourselves. Stress certainly changes patterns of behavior. And, um, and some of the ways it does that are patterns of behavior that are less attractive to adopters. Um, stressed dogs tend to perform a lot of repetitive behaviors, which are definitely turnoffs for anybody looking to adopt a dog. They don't want a dog that's pacing up and down or going around in circles or anything like that. So, so to some degree, we know this already, but we're digging deeper now so that we come to a richer understanding of how stress influences behavior. We're also looking at how stress influences behavior, and this was uh, supported by PetSmart Charities because these, on the one hand, the cortisol analysis from urine, as, as physiological, as biological measurements go, it's relatively cheap and easy. It's relatively easy to capture urine. It's easier than taking a blood sample. And the chemical analysis is relatively inexpensive. But obviously, this is still quite an imposition. A shelter running its normal business is unlikely to have the spare personnel, the spare time, or the spare money to actually carry out cortisol analyses on the dogs that they're caring for. So another study, as I say, supported by PetSmart Charities that Lisa Gunter carried out as part of her dissertation, was to just take the cortisol, the cortisol measurements, and take video recordings of the dogs and see what were the dogs doing compared to their cortisol levels. So most people think they know what a happy dog looks like and likewise think they know what a sad or stressed dog looks like. And there's doubtless some truth in 
typical assessments like that. But there's no science behind it. So now with Lisa's assessment, we have a scientific analysis of the behaviors that indicate that a dog is highly stressed and the behaviors that indicate that a dog is less stressed. So one of the projects she and I are working on at the moment is to write up a checklist so that we can say to shelters, watch out for the dogs that do these three or four things. These dogs are in a bad place. Do something to change their environment, to cheer them up, maybe get them out on a fostering expedition or something like that. And that would then also lead us to be able to carry out research that would investigate different ways of improving the dog's behavior. Fascinating. That's great. Okay, so you are recruiting for this multi-center study uh, sites. Yes. How is that going? The last update I got was that it's actually going really well. And I think we are now fully subscribed, but I, I'm, I should have checked before you called. And so when the study is completed, what sort of information do you hope to have? So the purpose of this study is to find out the impact of these different forms of fostering or the, from, the, from the days out through to the longer, perhaps week-long uh, sleepovers in families. Uh, uh, we're hoping that longer fostering may actually have lasting benefits when the dog has to return to the shelter. We'll see how that plays out. I'm also interested, because so many shelters are in the project, I'm interested to see, we already know that dogs in different shelters experience different levels of stress. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to find out what kinds of practices in shelters lead to less stressed dogs and what kinds of practices lead to more stressed dogs. And I'm rather hoping that it doesn't turn out that the more money you spend, the less stressed the dogs are. If you see what I mean, I'm hoping we'll find that there are some cheap ways of reducing stress in the shelter. That would be a very positive outcome. And I'm wondering if you can comment on sleep. Do dogs need to sleep quietly overnight to reduce their stress? And I've always wondered about that. Oh, thank you, Peter. That's a great question. I should have, I should have remembered that on my own. So one thing, everybody who has, you know, my dog, how many hours a day does my dog sleep? We've never actually done an analysis on my dog, but it seems to me quite likely that she is sleeping 14, 16 plus hours a day. And uh, studies have been done showing that dogs sleep 60% of the daylight hours, and then the study didn't include an analysis of nighttime hours, but I think dogs are sleeping 80, 90% of nighttime hours as well. So dogs do need a lot of sleep, and we know that dogs in shelters are not getting anything like that much sleep. Uh, there was a study, I believe it showed that dogs were only sleeping 40% of the 24-hour cycle. So one condition that we suspect is contributing to the substantial stress of dogs in shelters is they're just not getting enough sleep. Presumably, they keep each other awake with their barking and so on. And we know from our first study that when dogs go on, on fostering trips to our home, what is the most abiding thing that the foster parents notice about this dog that's staying with them for a day or two? They say the dog sleeps. So it seems quite likely that one of the major benefits of getting out of the shelter is that the dogs get more and better quality sleep. And that is something we really need to investigate in more detail. And what could shelters do to improve the possibilities for sleep in, in their kennels? 
Well, I'm sure our listeners are very grateful for the work you and your collaborators are putting out, and I want to thank you. Where can they learn more? Uh, well, there's my, my website is perhaps the easiest thing. If people can remember how to spell my name, they can find my website. My website is clivewin.com. That's C-L-I-V-E-W-Y-N-N-E. Thank you so much for visiting with us, Dr. Wynn. Peter, my pleasure entirely. Thank you for thinking of me. Okay, stick around more after this break. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about giraffe hunting. Within the limitless grassy African plains lies the mighty giraffe, sharing its home with zebras, antelope, lions, cheetahs, and various other animals that make their home in the heart of Africa. These beautiful creatures face deforestation, agricultural conversion, and poaching. Their population has declined at least 40% over the past decade. Today, there are only approximately 80,000 giraffe left in the world. Giraffe numbers are shrinking, and their conservation status is vulnerable on the IUCN red list of threatened species, and the killing of these docile vegetarians continues. Besides the pressure of habitat loss, legal hunting and illegal poaching both occur. Giraffe trophy hunting tourism can be lucrative for the operators and can charge as much as $15,000 for a trip guaranteeing a kill. Illegal sport hunting is also reported to be prevalent. And poachers continue their own killing, seeking meat and coats primarily. Another factor contributing to the poaching crisis is the use of parts of the tail as a dowry to the fathers of prospective brides in certain cultures. The animals are literally being killed just to obtain the tail. And, as we've heard before, enforcement of wildlife protection laws is extremely challenging. So please check out the important work of Giraffe Conservation Foundation, African Wildlife Foundation, World Wildlife Foundation, and Wildlife Conservation Society to learn more and to see how you can help protect these gentle giants. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Peter, I heard a song that I haven't heard in years, Mm -hmm. and I can't get it out of my head. Okay, that could be good or bad. And why are we talking about this? Because it has an animal in the title. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So I want you to guess it. Okay. Foxy Lady. (laughs) The first word of the title of the song is rock. Rock Lobster. Right. Okay. (laughs) By whom? The B-52s. Exactly. When's the last time you heard that song? Yesterday. Really? I like the B-52s. I've got one of their CDs, maybe two. I saw the B-52s not long ago at the Hollywood Bowl. Without uh, me. Yeah. It was really good. Fred still got his cowbell. He doesn't move as much as he used to, but it was really fun. Is he heavy or just old or both? Well, we're all getting older. He looks pretty darn good, I have to say. Yeah. Well, I have some of the best songs ever with an animal in the song title. 
So you're going to guess. I hope it's from my era. It is. Okay, good. So you're going to guess the name of the song title and who sang it. Mm. Okay, ready? Shoot. The name of the song is a sleek fish with an elongated body, mm. a mouth full of sharp teeth, and they resemble underwater torpedoes. Oh, shark, shark, porpoise, sharp teeth. Okay, let me know. Barracuda. Oh, Barracuda. By? By heart. Good. Okay, next. Large prehistoric looking reptile that are found throughout the world's hottest tropical regions. Mm. Large. Large. Oh, alligator. Crocodile rock. Ah, very good. Crocodile rock. Bye. Good, good, okay. Okay. This animal is a wild carnivorous mammal of the dog family living and hunting in packs. First get the animal. Mm, Yeah. Then you can get the song title. Wolf. Right. Wolf. Hungry like the wolf. Yes. Good. Okay, Duran Duran. Very okay. good. All You're right. good at this. Just stay in this zone. Like n- nothing more recent than 1995. It's and not. I'm okay. They're not. Okay. The males of this species may learn 200 songs in his lifetime. In addition to bird songs, these animals have been heard to mimic frogs, insects, and even non animal noises such as car alarms. Oh. Oh, let's see. Um, they are robins? No. That's um, a good guess. No. Um, a parrot. No. Um, toucan. Macaw. Uh, uh, Can I tell you what it starts with? Yeah. M. That doesn't help okay. me. Sorry. <laughs> M. Is it a bird? Did you yes. say bird? It's a bird. It has bird in its name. Oh, mockingbird. Good. Oh, Bye. Yeah. Oh, boy. I know that uh, James Taylor yes. and Carly Simon. Good. Were, did they write it? Yes. I don't, oh, wow. Good. Wow. That was a good one. The weight of this bird is less than a penny. <laughs> That's a hummingbird? Yes. That's a song? Yep. Oh, I don't know anything about that song. Seals and Cross. Oh. Oh, yeah. Remember now? Mm-hmm. The word pinniped means fin or flipper-footed and refers to the marine mammals that have front and rear flippers. This group includes seals, sea lions, and... Seals, uh, sea lions, and... Walruses. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. Very good. Okay. By? By the Beatles. Is that the Beatles or Paul McCartney or John Lennon or do you know? You know what? I just assumed it was the Beatles. Mm. Let's ask Yoko. But don't ask her to sing it. No. There are about 59 different species of this bird throughout the world. Large birds of prey and mm-hmm. excellent vision. Yes. Fly like an eagle. Very good. By? By Steve Miller. Very good. Yeah. That's right in the sweet spot of my uh, of my song knowledge. Scientific name of this animal is Procyon loader. Mm. Means washer dog. Washer. Although it is a closer relative to the bear family. Oh, is that a, like a beaver? Or a close, or an otter? No, a, uh, a raccoon. Yes. Oh, Rocky raccoon. Very good. Bye. <laughs> Same thing. Those beetle people. Okay, <laughs> the beetle people. <laughs> Large oceanic bird starts with the letter A. Albatross. Very good. Bye. Ooh, I don't know that song. Albatross. Oh, that's I'd have no no idea. Fluid Mac. Okay. 
1962, the controversial book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson was published, right? I remember that. It documented the adverse effects on the environment of the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Yep. She noted threats to some birds like eagles and other raptors, but she warned that one of the most common American birds, this bird, was on the verge of extinction, and hence the title, since these birds would be silent and wouldn't be singing. What bird is this? Bird that sings a lot, like Rob Robin. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know she talked about robins. That was the name of you know her book, Silent Spring, uh-huh. indicating that uh. the pesticide would kill all the robins and oh. spring would be silent. Oh, okay. Now it makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I think I, re- I think I read that too. Oh, Rock and Robin. Bye. Okay. Bye. I'm gonna say the Jackson Five. Very good. Okay. A small, like two to four inches, ground-dwelling member of the squirrel family known for their burrowing habits and love of nuts. Gopher? Um, are you a... It's a good guess. Um... <laughs> High voices. Oh, chipmunk yeah <laughs> oh that okay. that was a good clue okay chipmunk by the oh that's the name of the song chipmunk yeah mm. the chipmunk song by the chipmunks okay <laughs> is it like is that like a a theme song to their cartoon or something like that or probably these animals are semi-aquatic rodents named for their musky smell and rat-like appearance they're known mostly for their destructive burrowing in ponds, streams, and dams. Okay. Is musky smell a hint? Not muskrat. Yes. Oh. Muskrat love. Very good. Bye. Yes. By uh, Captain and Tennille. Yep. Yeah. That was a funny duo right there. Was that like a one-hit wonder? No, they had a, they had their, they had a run of uh, those, those sappy, funny little 70s songs. Yeah. These animals have a head called mantle, mm-hmm. surrounded with eight arms called tentacles. Eight. Well, eight is octopus. Very good. And? Octopus. Octopus's garden. Yep. Bye. Those lads from Liverpool. Very good. Okay. These animals are primarily exploited and abused as farm animals, mainly for their wool and meat, and to some extent, their byproducts like cheese and milk. Oh, uh, sheep? Yep. Sheep. Sheep. There's a sheep from Pink Floyd, isn't there? Yep. Okay. Got it. Yep. I like that one. What animal does the president pardon every year the most ridiculous White House tradition? (laughs) The turkey. There's a turkey song. Yeah, there's a turkey song. Turkey. um, I can give you another hint. Okay. When you abruptly and completely stop taking a drug you're addicted to. Oh, you go cold turkey. They yes, bye. Cold turkey. I don't remember that one. I know. John Lennon. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Peter, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a B minus for today's quiz, but there'll be another one soon. So until then, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 